The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Mamakmore and Sodasma were necromancers who came from the dark isle of Nat to practice their baleful arts in Tinnerath beyond the shrunken seas. But they did not prosper in Tinnerath, for death was deemed a holy thing by the people of that grey country, and the nothingness of the tomb was not lightly to be desecrated, and the raising up of the dead by necromancy was held in abomination. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three in our series on necromancy, the ancient practice of consulting the dead or the spirits of the dead for the purpose of divination, of accessing hidden knowledge. Yes, despite the fact that a lot of our modern pop culture uses of necromancy tend to involve raising of the dead. And uh, actually, that quote that I read at the top of this episode is from the 1932 short story, The Empire of the Necromancers by Clark Ashton Smith. And it is full of raising the dead uh, via the necromantic arts. But yeah, as we've discussed in these episodes so far, uh, necromancy, as we loosely categorize it, is more uh, situated in the realm of divination. Now, in the previous episodes in the series, uh, which if you haven't listened to yet, you should probably go check those out first. But uh, in these previous episodes, we talked about accounts of necromancy or pseudo necromantic legends from uh, from ancient China. We talked about uh, accounts of how necromancy was practiced or may have been practiced in ancient Mesopotamia, including consulting these tablets that have uh, descriptions of the incantations to use and the potions to prepare if you want to speak to the dead through a prepared skull. In a, in a special ritual. Uh, in part two, we talked about a lot of accounts of necromancy as practiced or at least as used as a plot device in stories from ancient Greece and Rome. And today we wanted to come back and finish out the discussion by talking about necromancy a little bit more. 
Yeah, we're going to jump around a little bit here. Later on in the episode, I think we're going to get into some um, medieval Christian ideas about necromancy, what it was, and whether you should do it or not. Uh, spoiler, they, they tended to say, no, don't do it. But but with some caveats, I'll, I'll get into. I also want to interrogate the boundaries of necromancy a little bit and uh, maybe pick apart the concept somewhat. Uh, but before we do that, there's a question that's been coming up because we've been looking at examples from the ancient world of how this uh, may have been practiced or at least was thought by some to be practiced uh, in the ancient world. My question would be, well, how far back does does it go? What's the earliest evidence we have of people trying to uh, to communicate or consult with the dead? Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. Again, with the huge caveat that the term necromancy can be applied very broadly or very specifically and is ultimately just a word. Um, So uh, with that in mind, I will refer back briefly to the paper, uh, The Origins of Necromancy or How We Learn to Speak to the Dead by uh, Czech academic Andrzej Kapkar. Um, He argues for a connection potentially between ancient shamanistic practices and what we might think of as necromancy with individual human beings often serving as psychopomps, for example, you know, guardians, guy, you know, there to guide one spirit from this world into the next. Um, um, other functions that would put a living mortal shaman in, in some form of communication with the deceased are also imaginable. Um, this in addition to just general ancestor veneration, ancestor cults, and ancestor worship. So it's not, con- in, it's not inconceivable to consider all of this uh, you know, potential hallmark of human spiritual and religious thought going back to very early human culture as a coping method for the emotionally and socially devastating reality of death. Right. We don't know, but it seems perfectly plausible that it could be something like first people, you know, just merely emotionally missed their dead loved ones and wanted to, you know, continue thinking about them and talking about them and so forth. And maybe from this arose some kind of culture of keeping their memory alive, out of which arose some kind of idea that, well, maybe there are ways to still talk to them somehow and maybe they have something to say to us. Yeah, because, I mean, we undeniably have a desire to speak to them. I mean, that's that's proven out in, in so many countless examples, including our own individual experiences. I mean, I think a lot of us have visited the grave of a, of a, of a deceased loved one and, and spoken to them. Uh, you know, varying degrees of understanding or, or expectation of them hearing us and, and certainly of them speaking back to us, but to speak to the dead, I think, is not necessarily this, you know, this alien supernatural thing. I think it it comes from a very natural place in the human psyche and, and probably gets back into this idea that, yeah, when someone dies, it is it is emotionally and socially devastating and we have to find ways to deal with it. On the other hand, while you can imagine that historical uh, or prehistoric development, and it it certainly seems plausible, it's hard to have decisive evidence for things like that or to have decisive evidence of practices of communicating with and getting knowledge from the dead uh, from before times of, say, literary writings about such. Right, right. Because the literature gives us more insight into what was done, why it was done, and what the expectation was in, in, in many instances. Sometimes, you know, there are still questions, uh, certainly. But otherwise, what are you left with? You're left with human remains. And you can sort of look at, at like two broad categories. Situations where human remains have not been manipulated by human beings and 
situations where they have been manipulated by human beings. And added caveat, as we've discussed in the show before, and we've recently had a guest in the show to discuss this, like sometimes that's up for dispute, too, with one side saying, I don't think these bodies were manipulated by human beings. I think they were manipulated by predatory animals. And then the other side saying, no, this is this is evidence of humans manipulating their dead. And intentional manipulation of the dead has been going on for a very long time, at least since the time of the Neanderthals. We move bodies and we've moved bodies for various purposes and a rich global heritage of funerary practices have grown out of these traditions. But with the oldest burials, you look at them and yeah, we just have very little to go on when we're trying to decide try and figure out like what was the intent behind this practice? Was it a practice? And what was the intent? Right. So given the, those extreme caveats, what are some of these pieces of ambiguous evidence people might point to to think, I wonder if this was used for romantic purposes, for necromancy? Well, Kepkar highlights uh, ancient archaeological sites linked to ancestor cults as being some of the main candidates uh, for some form of ancient necromancy in the Middle East. And, uh, and I should add that he's not arguing like 100% this is necromancy. He's just saying like, okay, beyond what we can be certain about, what, what evidence could we make an argument about? Mm-hmm. A specific mention is made of the plaster-covered heads of Kadalhuk dating back to 7500 to 5700 BCE. Uh, we've mentioned this place on the show before specifically in our invention episodes on the coffin, the toilet, and the mirror, as well as our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes on brain and head theft, uh, because there does seem to be some sort of ritual removal of the head here. Well, let's zero in on the example of plastered human skulls from the ancient Fertile Crescent to see what we can figure out from them. Uh, Rob, I've attached a picture for you to look at here. This is a famous plastered skull from, I think, uh, dates given are sometimes 9,000 or 9,500 years ago. Uh, this is sometimes known as the Jericho skull. It is one mm-hmm. of the skulls recovered from the tell or the mound of the ancient settlement of, of Jericho. And this is from the Neolithic period. Yeah, this is quite uh, intriguing to look at because Again, you have a human skull, but it has been covered in plaster in a way to sort of, it seems like, to recreate the flesh of the dead. And then we have what I believe these are shells that have been placed uh, in uh, where the eyes would be. Yeah, exactly. So there are multiple artifacts of this type from the ancient Levant and some from Turkey, from, uh, again, the the site of Chatelhuyuk. And Essentially, what these are are real human skulls, sometimes without the mandible, so without the the lower jaw, uh, filled in with earth or plaster and then covered on the outside in plaster, at least on the front, and decorated with individual facial features. So as you said, Rob, seashells for eyes. They might be clam shells or cowrie shells, some kind of shells, uh, marine shells to simulate eyeballs and then plaster facial structure. So maybe even like eyelids overlapping the seashells in a way. And of course, uh, painting on the outside. So hair and eyebrows and mustaches and so forth would be painted on the plaster. I was actually watching an interview with a curator at the 
British Museum. Coincidentally, another in uh, the series Curator's Corner, which I mentioned in part one of this series uh, for unrelated reasons. That was just an interview uh, with an author named Irving Finkel, who we were reading a paper from. Uh, That was about ancient Mesopotamian exorcism practices. This is an interview with a curator from the British Museum named Alexandra Fletcher about the Jericho skull. And she opines that the Jericho skull, the one you're looking at here, Rob, is probably the oldest example of portraiture in the British Museum's collection because of the assumption that it was made to resemble a specific person. Though we don't know that, uh, we don't know for sure, but these skulls are usually assumed to have been made to resemble the person the skull belonged to in life. Which makes sense, right? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a plaster sculpture of someone and you have their skull on hand, like there you go. That's the the perfect foundation upon which to create your art. And there's an interesting scientific and technological parallel to this that comes up in a second. So uh, Fletcher goes into describing some work, like analysis work that has been done on the Jericho skull. Uh, She says, as background, uh, he was part of a group of seven people who were buried together, uncovered in the 1950s. And she talks about research to try to analyze the human skull underneath without damaging the plaster surrounding it, at least uh, at least surrounding the front of the skull. The back is more exposed. And she says that the researchers used CT scanning to create an image of the bone underneath without hurting the plaster. And that revealed some interesting stuff. For example, this man's nose was broken sometime in life, and it shows how it had been broken and healed. Uh, And as a child, this man had had his head uh, bound to uh, possibly to shape the skull as the man grew Mm -hmm. up. So there was a, a sense in which the skull was sort of pinched and you can see a ridge in the the skull where it was pinched that way. And this, as he developed it, he had a slightly elongated skull for this reason. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, not, not an uncommon practice in certain parts of the ancient world. After death, the inside of the skull was stuffed with soil and clay, and there's a hole in the back of the skull where uh, Fletcher says you can still see the indentations of the fingers of the person who packed the clay into the brain cavity. Wow. But the interesting parallel to the ancient plaster surrounding the skull is that by analyzing the bone structure, modern scientists were able to, with a good degree of accuracy, they think, reconstruct this man's face. Uh, The process is considered not exact but pretty accurate to the extent that Fletcher claims uh, that if uh, people who knew this man in life walked into the room and saw the reconstruction, she says she thinks they would instantly recognize him. So in a way, we have used modern technology to reconstruct this man's face around around the basis of the skull, much like ancient people used, uh, I guess, probably memory of what this man looked like to reconstruct his face in plaster around the skull. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating, though. Again, we 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 can't know 100 percent you know, why they they did this. And certainly right. you can you can make arguments for the the lifelike qualities being bestowed upon the skull in order to communicate with it i mean that's that's certainly the the hard necromantic angle to take on it and uh, and others have found this interesting as well uh these skulls are brought up by julian james in his book the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind as being um, you know one of the many different bits of, of of evidence or alleged evidence from the ancient world that he uses to back up this this hypothesis of the bicameral mind. 
yeah, I assume he, he probably is leaning heavily on the interpretation uh, that, that people talked to these skulls, which, again, I want to really emphasize, like, we don't know that. All we have are the artifacts. Right. There are not, there's not literature describing how these skulls were used in the ancient world. So we just don't know. Yeah, we don't know if they spoke to the skulls. Um, for the most, I mean, we don't know if the skull, we assume the skulls did not answer, though Jane's would argue that they possibly did. And yes, if Julian Jane's hypothesis was correct, that would impact everything we've been discussing about in terms of necromancy, because it would mean that, yes, there here is a, a, a neurological way that the dead not only could speak to human beings, but spoke to them on a regular basis. Go back and listen to our old episodes on, on his hypothesis if you want to know more about that. Uh, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, like, did they just simply recreate these faces in order to honor them, to remember them? Um, and if they were speaking to them, like we can sort of imagine like a, a, a broad scale, a spectrum of of possible necromancy, you know, and there's, you know, you, there, there are certainly versions of this interpretation in which they might have been speaking to these skulls, but we're not actually seeking knowledge from the dead. That's right. So I want to get deeper into that in a minute. Uh, but in a way, this connects to what I thought was an interesting little aside comment that uh, this British Museum researcher, uh, Alexandra Fletcher, makes in this interview where she just kind of says that, you know, the longer you work with uh, work with these skulls, do research on them, especially maybe from the, you know, the reconstruction of the face, the more you come to see the skulls, not just as an artifact, but as a person. And I was like, wow, maybe I am overinterpreting, but that seems perhaps revealing about the effect they might have had on the people who originally made them as well. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to come back to the idea of adding some sort of uh, complications to the idea of uh, necromancy or uh, divination through the dead as a as a coherent and discrete practice. So I was thinking about this and I, I was thinking about how in a lot of these early settlements where these plaster skulls are found, uh, you know, the settlements with permanent structures like uh, Chattelhuyuk, which you mentioned, and Jericho. There are other interesting features about how the dead were dealt with as well, not just the creation of plaster skulls. But in these settlements, it seems sometimes the bodies of the dead were buried inside people's houses. So maybe your grandparents' bones might not be off in a cemetery somewhere else that you go and visit from time to time, but right in the house with you, maybe buried under the floor or under your bed. Uh, again, we don't know for sure why they did this. They, all kinds of speculation abounds. Uh, in some cases, it looks like the bodies might have been removed elsewhere for the flesh to rot off the bones or be picked off the bones. Maybe the, the, the bones were defleshed somewhere else and then maybe brought back inside the house and then they would live uh, under the floor or under your bed or something. Um, but these are also places where we encounter plastered skulls. So it just seem, it seems possible to me that if the skull had some kind of significance as a as a conduit for communication with the dead, I wonder if it wasn't a special, discrete, transactional event ritual like we've been talking about in some of these Greek stories, you know, where you like you go to the oracle and you know what I mean? Like like it mm-hmm. being a special event. I wonder if it's more like just a kind of continuous belief that, yes, grandma is still here with us. She's in the house. She lives with us. Yeah, I mean, I can easily imagine that that being the case. Again, it's not too far away from sort of the the mild background supernatural ideas that many of us may may dabble in, you know, like to think about a deceased loved one being nearby, you know, uh, 
it, it, I think is something that a lot of us probably do to some degree without even being on the level of like, I believe in ghosts, you know? And so if the situation were something more like that, to the extent that you would seek advice from your grandparent in this context, I wonder if it would give kind of the wrong impression to call that necromancy because, again, of the uh, all the stories we have in which it the necromancy is usually more a, like I was saying, a discrete transactional kind of event ritual versus something that is just intimate and continuous and part of life. Yeah, so many of these stories, ancient and modern, depict necromancy as kind of an extreme thing you do. Um, you know, when 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 other uh, attempts to remedy a situation have not worked, that's when you seek out the necromantic solution. But then again, just to emphasize how little we know for sure, there could be totally different explanations as well. I mean, maybe uh, burying the bones in the house and putting uh, a plaster face over your ancestor's skull, maybe that was just merely a form of honoring and remembering people, just like you might... I don't know, have a have a photo of a dead relative on the wall today or or something buried with them. You know, we miss our ancestor who has passed on. So maybe we keep the bones or or plaster the skull uh, in a way uh, under the house or in the house in a way of remembering them. Yeah. And so certainly these are not neutral skulls. These are skulls that are you know conceivably connected to to loved ones. But still, like even human understanding and appreciation of skulls is kind of complex because they take on all these symbolic meanings but then they're also there's also this sort of like coolness to the skull that has uh, seemed to exist for a long time um and uh you know we get into this with other skull-based uh traditions and artifacts as well as uh discussed in the recent either recently rerun or about to be rerun episode where i interviewed brian hoggard about uh, anti-witchcraft precautions some of which involved putting skulls particularly horse skulls in the foundation of a building like a lot of it's just kind of like well horse skulls are really interesting looking they don't look like horses but yet they are horses and horses have this important um place in in human lives so yeah there, there are a number of different ways you can go in and, and and try and figure out like why was this important Right. So there, there's just so much like we don't know anybody who has uh, too, too confident or too certain a theory about what these what these uh, remains meant and how they were used. I think you should be highly skeptical of that. But I do think one interesting piece of information that we can use is not from the ancient world itself, but just from looking at practices of ancestor veneration today by by analogy, which is uh, a totally common practice all over the world. That's right. We discussed uh, we've discussed some of these already, at least in passing, uh, particularly the importance of ancestor veneration in Chinese culture. Right. And so I was looking for some documentation of uh, people today with religious practices that could be considered to include strong elements of ancestor veneration and also something that could be considered divination via deceased ancestors. And I think uh, from what I can tell, this combination of, of beliefs is not especially unique or unusual. Lots of people around the world practice forms of ancestor veneration that might include some way of establishing contact with the dead or getting information or messages from them. Uh, but I wanted to find one clear example with, with documentation of specifics, so we're not just dealing with generalities. And I came across an interesting paper looking at the Bapeti people. Uh, so this was by Mora Kang Ike Labaka, who is a scholar at the University of South Africa, specializing in African musical arts and ethnomusicology. 
The paper was called The Art of Establishing and Maintaining Contact with Ancestors, a Study of Bapedi Tradition, uh, published in the journal HTS Theological Studies in the year 2018. So the Bapedi people mostly live within northern South Africa, and Labaka, synthesizing the work of some previous ethnographers, uh, describes a common view of ancestors among the Bapedi people. Again, same caveat with, with all of the examples we've talked about. Uh, beliefs are not usually universal within a culture. All you can do is describe commonly found beliefs. He says, first of all, in the words of a scholar named Mibiti, there is a widespread belief in many African uh, traditional religions that, quote, death does not annihilate life and the departed continue to exist in the hereafter. So the dead are not gone. They remain spiritually alive in some sense. Also, Labaka says that the character of ancestors is believed to remain fundamentally unchanged since they were alive. Dead ancestors go on existing. They remain themselves in good and bad ways so they can protect and advise their descendants. Uh, but they are also not like perfect, uh, perfected ethereal beings. They're like us. They and they are like they were in life. So also prone to jealousy and motivations of that sort. He says the spirits of ancestors have the power to affect the fates of the living, and this can be for good or for ill. Uh, their behavior toward the living depends largely on if they are properly honored and venerated. And Labaka argues that veneration is different from worship. Veneration is more like the, the respect that the young are expected to give to their elders, except extended beyond the boundary of death and, and does have special rituals involved. He says, ancestral spirits guard and enforce morality within the family and prevent feuds and conflicts between living members of the family. Uh, this is mentioned later in the article, but it's worth noting that ancestors are believed to be powerful and can cause supernatural outcomes to, uh, to affect people, but they're not omnipotent. They can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Labaka says that sometimes Bapeti ancestors need to be contacted, need to be communicated with. And he says there are a couple of main ways to establish contact. There are uh, these communal music and dance ceremonies known as the Malopo ritual, and that appeases the ancestral spirits. But there is also uh, a way of seeking help of traditional healers, especially with the use of divination bones. Now, uh, I, I want to note that as far as I could tell, these are not the bones of ancestors. The paper doesn't address this question directly, but it seemed to me based on a photo included in the paper and, uh, and then the fact that it was not specified otherwise that these would probably be normal kind of bones that would be used in practices of osteomancy. Yeah, I think in other, in other instances of bones being used as essentially, uh, you know, dice of some sort, um, you know, they've always been animal bones. I don't remember offhand an example of them being human bones, but they may exist elsewhere. I only specified that because we were just talking about examples of bones being kept like within the houses of the living. So yeah. uh, I think we're not talking about ancestors' bones here. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. They would have surely specified if that was the case. So Labaka in this paper includes a number of interviews with traditional healers, one of whom describes that direct communication between healers and their own ancestors happens through music and through dreams, and that the purpose of the use of music and group singing in ritual contact with ancestors is, quote, to create harmony between the living and the ancestors. 
And I thought that was interesting because it, it reminds me of the way that, of course, singing can be used to create a sense of togetherness among the living alone. You know, all, mm-hmm. just like a people, a group of people singing together. I think almost everybody will know what I'm talking about when I say the way that creates this weird sense of emergent harmony and sort of group identity. And so maybe by inviting the dead to be a part of that as well, you, you're sort of uh, bringing them to the table in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this paper used a naturalistic approach of uh, observing Malopo rituals and interviewing traditional healers about the function of ancestor veneration in Bapeti society. And there's one story recounted in the in the paper told by a healer that that goes basically as follows. I'll do a shorter summary. Uh, the healer, before she was a uh, traditional healer, she had been sick and had experienced trouble sleeping. And then she had a dream of a man who gave her a plastic bag full of divination bones. And so she went to her Christian church to find out what to do, and they gave her some instructions of things uh, she could do, but she did not follow the instructions and started having encounters with snakes, like there was a snake in her pillowcase one night. And then the the encounters got worse. She and her husband encountered uh, a much bigger snake. So she and her husband went to visit a traditional healer, and he used divination bones to discover that her grandfather had been a traditional healer himself, and he wanted her to become a healer as well. And the the illness, the insomnia, and the snakes were signs to push her onto this path. So in her story, she accepted the call, became a healer, and after her training, she came home and was welcomed back with a malopo ritual, and the snakes and the pain and the insomnia were gone. There are also other stories included here of uh, ill health and frightening experiences brought on by ancestors to sort of pressure the living descendants to follow their advice. And Labaka, uh, this is not a point Labaka raises in the paper, but I just happened to note that in the cases documented in this study, the communication with dead ancestors sought with the help of healers uh, does not provide information about like objective future outcomes, such as, you know, what will happen in the future? Who's going to ascend to the throne? Who's going to win the war? Like we talked about in some of these ancient examples. Rather, it seems to be providing the ancestor's personal perspective. So in this case of divination, it, it's not, it, it has less of a prophetic quality than in some of the, like, especially the fictional accounts. And seems more to me like it's focused on seeking the ancestor's advice, like it allows the person to understand the ways that the ancestor is influencing their life for good or for ill. And kind of the same way a chat with a living elder might provide both personal advice of things that they think you should do with your life, but also explanations of why and how the elder is treating you the way they are. Yeah, and sort of serving to to bring the current generation in line with past generations and the the, the will and the um, expectations of ancestors. This reminds me of how, uh, in certain um, analysis I've read of of uh, traditional Chinese ancestor veneration, that you could think of it as a kind of structural com- completeness. Hmm. That uh, the family unit is not just a thing that exists. Um, you know, with with borders and uh, and and a, and a certain headcount in the present, but it is a thing that exists in the present and stretching back through the past, and therefore, like being in line with the will of ancestors is about like keeping the structure sound mm. uh, and making sure that everything is is lined up. 
uh, and has this structural completeness, which I think can can be a, a slightly alien concept to many of us, especially if you you tend to sort of view like the the, the family as a thing that exists solely in the present. Maybe it sinks back a little bit in, in time, but is not uh, deeply rooted in the past. Well, yeah, it seems to me to highlight how culturally variable uh, the idea of the family is, like what constitutes the family and, and uh, as especially as like a functional unit still having an effect on all members within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so anyway, to look at a few assessments from this paper, uh, Labaka says that there there's a common belief among uh, people of the Bipedi society that the, the main thing ancestors want is to be remembered and respected by their descendants. And if the living faithfully remember and venerate their ancestors, they're going to be blessed with good health, healthy livestock and crops, good weather and so forth. And sometimes for a healing to take place, a healer will have to consult the spirits of ancestors directly to find out what to do. Uh, Another interesting thing he notes is that he says, uh, Bepetti often feel that it is inappropriate to approach their supreme deity or God directly and instead would use their ancestral spirits as sort of intermediaries or emissaries between themselves and God. Hmm. So I thought this was an interesting layer of perspective that gives us, I think, a more nuanced view of what it means to be in contact and communication with the dead. Because here's one case where people today certainly do use rituals such as communal music and dance and uh, consultation with healers using divination bones to get in contact with the dead. But it does not seem to me, at least not in the cases documented in this study, to usually be for the purpose of like knowing the future in advance, but rather for the purpose of gaining perspective on the present and the past. You establish communication with the dead in order to receive wisdom and to receive advice and to find out what your ancestors want you to do or expect you to do and to find out how the ancestors' advice uh, and desires are connected to the trials and other things you are experiencing in your daily life. And this really got me thinking because it, it made me think that actually, even in a lot of the cases we've already been looking at from, you know, accounts from the ancient world and so forth, a lot of the cases of divination through spirits of the dead that we looked at did not consist of a person seeking to know the future in the kind of, you know, the fictional sorcerer sense we think about where, like, somebody wants ultimate power and so they want to know what happens ahead of time to exploit that. Um, Instead, it very often seemed to involve a much more personal, intimate, interactive kind of knowledge, like knowledge useful for the exorcism of an unwanted ghost or knowledge useful to get advice or, you know, wisdom from an ancestor or other knowledge of that kind of that kind of personal sort. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, it almost puts things more in line with this idea that what we think of as necromancy is maybe more in line with various shamanistic practices going stretching back through various human cultures uh, very far back. In, in human existence. Uh, but yeah, not the, but, but, but a lot of like smaller practices aimed at sort of realigning your life. Things that almost could be thought of as having a therapeutic uh, property to them. You know, it's like something feels out of line in my life. I need to get right with the ancestors. I need to touch base with the ancestors in one form or another. 
But that makes me feel like maybe we should come back and further explore the other side of the scale as well. If that's a view of uh, divination seeking communication with the dead as a kind of intimate, wholesome, integrated thing within people's lives and culture that helps provide the perspective of ancestors and wisdom. There are also culturally very different views that, uh, that, that would place it back in the category of like a special, extreme, transactional kind of event ritual. Yeah, yeah. And in this, we're going like, to, we, we've, we've been talking about sort of bottom up necromancy, necromancy or things like necromancy that are that, that, that have emerged as part of traditional practices. Now let's turn back to medieval Christian Europe and think about sort of like the top-down view of a, a Christian hierarchy looking to stamp out necromantic uh, practices and necromantic texts. Because as we've mentioned several times already, there is this general attitude in medieval Christian Europe, again, very top-down, not talking about like traditional pre-Christian beliefs that are still resonating among the various peoples of Europe and various peoples under um, the control of Christian forces, but rather this, this top-down view that, first of all, the dead cannot be communicated with, and they should not be communicated with. If you attempt necromancy, you may well speak with something, but it will be a demon rather than a ghost, and so only ill can come of it. Now, that being said, Necromancy and necromantic texts certainly existed and were circulated. Uh, and at times, they were greatly feared by the church. As pointed out by Richard Kiekeffer in 1997's Forbidden Rites, when Franciscan friar Bernard de Lusseau was accused by the Holy Inquisition of using necromancy against the Pope in 1319, he was cleared of the charge, but he was still sent to prison for merely possessing a book uh, that, of, of alleged necromancy. Simon, I'd rather see you dead. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. that, uh, the, the movie you're referencing does, uh, d- does uh, present this very you know, top-down view of like, like forbidden knowledge and, uh, and so forth. We're, we're talking about The Devil Rides Out, by the way, where Christopher yeah. Lee's character, like, oh, it's okay for him to know about all of the forbidden ma- magical rituals, but it's not okay for his friend Simon to know about them. Oh, yeah. I mean, within one of these uh, these cultural situations, it's always OK for someone to know about them, to know about these things. And those are the ones who get to tell everyone else that they're not allowed to know about them. The witch hunters get all, all the, the cool texts. Anyway, fears and accusations of, um, of clergy possessing and or using necromantic writings continued afterwards. Um, however, Kiekeffer discusses these books as concerning, quote, explicitly demonic magic. As well, and this seems to have been the case during the Middle Ages as well, where sometimes something described as necromancy did involve divination via the dead, but other times it was used interchangeably with uh, demonic magic. By most theological definitions, however, communication with demons and demonic divination would not be the same as merely speaking with the dead, unless you're getting into this uh, again this very specific Christian caveat. Um, about the distinction or the lack of a distinction between the two. Kiekeffer writes, quote, One possible reason for the conflation of these terms and concepts was the widespread assumption that when one engaged in necromancy in the original sense, conjuring the spirits of the deceased, the spirits which in fact appeared were demons in the forms of the dead. And the biblical example here that is often uh, uh, summoned up uh, to, to support this is the shade of, of, of Samuel being conjured by the witch of Endor 
And it is said that this is not really the spirit of Samuel. This is a demon in the guise of his spirit. I don't think the Bible says that. I think uh, in the Bible, it is pretty much understood to be Samuel. Yeah, yeah. But again, you get into like, what are the official interpretations of, of a given religious text, right? Yeah. Still, there was discussion of pure necromancy in various texts. Um, a couple of examples are brought up here. There's the, the Rawlinson Necromantic Manuscript, as it's popularly known. Uh, this is a Latin and Middle English collection of texts on magic and divination, including the, the invocation of angels as well as the dead. It's named for Richard Rawlinson, an 18th century clergy member and collector of rare books and manuscripts. Um, so, yeah, it contains instructions for necromantic magic, as does the so-called Munich Manual of Demonic Magic, a 15th century uh, Gothic grimoire. Instructions from the Munich uh, Manual via Kiefer involve the creation of multiple magic circles, a sword and a ring. Uh, and you can use these rites to speak to the dead, certainly, but also you can make a living person appear dead. You can also make a living person fall in love with you and many other things. Mm. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Now, in one section, uh, Kikefer adds some interesting ideas about the idea of necromancy and nonsense. We often assume that everyone considering necromancy in medieval times was either an eager believer or a fearful inquisitor when it came to this kind of stuff. So he writes the following, quote, one might add to this that it is not altogether anachronistic to see the notion of necromancy as nonsense, as it's at its most playful. It was a deliberate violation of sense, a fantasy of illusion, perhaps intended more for imaginative entertainment than for actual use. Yet the boundaries between sense and nonsense are rarely quite stable, and themes that seem to an outsider absolutely nonsensical could be taken in deadly earnest by some observers within the culture. Unquote. And the deadly, uh, deadly earnest observers in this particular case he would be referring to would be like the, um, the witch hunters and so forth, the, the demonology uh, theorists that brought about so much actual real misery in the world. Ah, so he's exploring the possibility that the, it was the, the inquisitors and so forth who, would, who were taking the concept more literally than the people who practiced it. Yeah, and I think maybe suggesting that there is, again, kind of a, it's not just necromancy and non-necromancy. You know, there, there's a broad spectrum of various beliefs, practices, rites, but also stories, legends, myths that may concern speaking with the dead that are understood to varying degrees within a given group to not be reality. You know, to in the same way that myth is somewhere between reality and fiction, you know, um, that uh, some of these traditions hold that place. But then you have someone come in with an agenda, uh, with a violent agenda, and they're here to stamp out practices that are a threat to the church, to stamp out individuals that are a threat to the church. Well, then they can take any of these things and use them to support their case. Mm. Now, for a little more detail on where the church stood on necromancy, and again, you're dealing with we're dealing with a, with centuries here. We're dealing with 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 all sorts of uh, individuals coming in with different ideas. So this is not presented to be like like the word on necromancy. Uh, but I I thought it would be interesting to turn to uh, the, the the famous uh, 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 writings of Thomas Aquinas, who lived uh, 1225 through 1274. This is the from the Summa Theologica or the Summary of Theology. Uh, the book covers a great deal of ground, but it does mention necromancy uh, in, in a few places and gets to the meat of what it was thought to be at the time in terms of divination. So this is from a translation of um, the Summa Theologica. Quote, All divinations seek to acquire foreknowledge of future events by means of some counsel and help of a demon. 
who is either expressly called upon to give his help or else thrusts himself in secretly in order to foretell certain future things unknown to men, but known to him, the demon, in such manners as to have been explained uh, in Isaiah 57.3. The statement almost seems like a direct argument against what we were just talking about with uh, respect to the sort of the subtlety and complex range of, of different kinds of communication with the dead that might take place, especially in a culture that practices uh, uh, common forms of ancestor veneration. Yeah, I mean, this is like, like clearly we're dealing with a situation where it is not thought that there is any room for this sort of thing within uh, within the Christian world. And anything outside of the Christian world that even looks like this is probably against the rules. It's always to know the future, and it's always a demon. Yes. Uh, so Aquinas continues to and states, When demons are expressly invoked, they are wont to foretell the future in many ways. Sometimes they offer themselves to human sight and hearing by mock apparitions in order for, to foretell the future. And this species is called uh, prestidigitation because man's eyes are blindfolded. Sometimes they make use of dreams, and this is called divination by dreams. Sometimes they employ apparitions or utterances of the dead, and this species is called necromancy. For as Isidore observes, in Greek, necron means dead, and mantia divination, because after certain incantations and the sprinkling of blood, the dead seem to come to life, to divine and to answer questions. So he goes on to discuss other forms of divination. Divination, he says, which is practiced without express invocation of demons, occurs in two forms. One by observing things in nature, um, and the other by observing things due to human action, like rolling dice or flipping through a book. He writes, again in translation, Accordingly, it is clear that there are three kinds of divination. The first is when the demons are invoked openly. This comes under the head of necromancy. The second is merely an observation of the disposition or movement of some other being, and this belongs to augury, while the third consists in doing something in order to discover the occult, and this belongs to sortilage. Under each of these, many others are contained, as explained above. And uh, he says, in all the aforesaid, there is the same general, but not the same special character of sin. For it is much more grievous to invoke the demons than to do things that deserve the demons' interference. So he's saying, look, if you're trying to do, let's say you're trying to speak to the spirit of the dead and a demon intercepts the call, as they always will, and then manipulates you through that communication, that's one thing. Like, that's bad. You've messed up. But it's, you haven't messed up as badly if you had gone out and done a demonic ritual and said, hey, demons, uh, I need you to come here because we have things to talk about. Mm. Now, I did find it interesting that Aquinas stresses that merely speaking to a demon or inquiring of the truth from a demon is not unlawful in part because Christ spoke to the demon legion. He spoke to the demons that were in the swine um, or driven into the swine. Uh, however, it is unlawful to invoke a demon. So by this classification, I would think, if a demon comes up to you and is like, hey, sup, you have every right to go sup back, but it is unlawful to summon the demon and then go sup. Right. Yes. Yeah. So if you encounter a demon, you can talk to you probably you can argue with it or whatever, but mm -hmm. you can't say like, hey, demons, uh, if any demon is out there, come debate me. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're Martin Luther and the demons show up, you can cuss at them, throw things at them and drive them away. Right. That's not 
demonic witchcraft or what have you. But if you summon them, I guess even if you summon them to to cuss at them, like that's bad. I would assume so. But especially if you summon them in order to gain power from them, that's bad. Yeah. So Aquinas says, quote, now it is one thing to question a demon who comes to us of his own accord. And it is lawful to do so at times for the good of others, especially when he can be compelled by the power of God to tell the truth and another to invoke a demon in order to gain from him knowledge of things hidden from us. Now, that I don't know. It seems to me like that opens up a gray area or like. Are you just could you put yourself in a position where you're just in the right place to encounter demons? Mm. So you're not quite summoning them, but you're like you're not baiting the demon, but you are hanging out in a place or a position where they might show up. I don't know. Like, I'm going to just keep moving my arms this way. And if they happen to touch a Ouija board, that that's its problem, not mine. Yeah, I'm or yeah, I'm going to hang out in this 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 haunted crypt and we'll just see what happens. Um yeah, he also mentions that uh, divination by the stars is fine, so long as you're not invoking a demon. So again, this is just a, a snapshot at some of the top-down ideas about speaking to the dead and why you shouldn't do it, and ultimately a little bit of demonology splashed in there as well. But, but you know, there's so much that would have been going on in different cultures throughout the the the, 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 the centuries covered by the Middle Ages here. I mean. There are all sorts of traditions involving, you know, speaking to the dead, conjuring the dead at crossroads uh, and so forth. Um, and, and then there are so many, uh, on top of that, there's so many different traditions, legends, ghost stories, etc., cetera, uh, that deal with this sort of thing that, again, may not have a like literal role within the culture saying this is how you speak to the dead. But like here is an idea of speaking to the dead and it can still have a great deal of importance within a given culture. Now, seeing these different views of communicating with the dead side by side, it really highlights how uh, how one, I think, could easily be mistaken for the other by an unsympathetic observer, like somebody who's got a particular theological point of view and who looks into a culture, one of the many cultures that practices forms of ancestor veneration that may involve some type of ritual of, uh, of consulting with the dead, with ancestors, seeking their wisdom or getting information about how they're continuing to affect your life. Uh, like that an unsympathetic observer looks in on a culture and sees that and they say, oh, they're doing witchcraft in order to get power from the dead so that they can like know events in advance and, uh, you know, and manipulate people. It seems very clear how that kind of mistaken impression could be formed, uh, and and I wonder if that gives rise to some legends of necromantic practices that probably weren't ever actually practiced, that were just like right. unsympathetic observer looking in on ancestor veneration of some form in another culture and saying like, ah, they're, they're consulting the dead in order to do something malicious. Yeah, absolutely. And then at, at the same time, I mean, you have things like the veneration of saints within, um, uh, the, you know, Catholic Christian traditions that, uh, you know, you could make an argument for sort of, you know, scratching the same itch. So, uh, you know, it, a lot of this falls, uh, you know, it, a lot of this depends on uh, on who's judging, um, who's laying out the, the laws and who's saying what is acceptable and what is not acceptable when we consider uh, individuals and generations that came before us. Do you think Aquinas was saying it's okay to talk to a demon if you didn't summon it because, like, he did that one time? Like, he, he's like, yeah, <laughs> actually, that's not a problem. 
Well, there there's so many, you know, I, I enjoy reading about this occasionally, like getting into exactly what was thought of as correct concerning demons um, at various points in the Middle Ages. Like what could they do and what could they not do in accordance with divine will? Uh, and there's some of that in um, in Aquinas' writing for sure. Uh, and you see that in the writings of other key individuals as well. Like can they uh, like one great classic example of this we've dis- we've discussed multiple times is can a, an incubus or succubus take on a complete disguise as a beautiful human to seduce humans? Uh, and there is the ideal no, that would that wouldn't be fair to the faithful. So there'll always be some sort of a tell, like duck feet or <laughs> some sort of goat feet or something, just so that you'll have so the faithful will have an out that you know. And so there's a lot of stuff like that. Can demons do miracles and so forth? Though I think as we discussed with the idea of the duck feet, I wonder if the idea was was really about the faithful having out or more about saying like, ah, yeah, if you did uh, succumb to an incubus or a succubus, it's your fault because there was something there you should have noticed. It's, right. It's right. about saying like, you, you, you know, it wasn't unfair to you. You should have been more on the lookout. Right. And, and also like what would a just God allow uh, under his domain? Yeah. You know, and, you know, there's, of course, the. The, the more pressing side of that, like why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering in the world and so forth? And that's, I guess, the larger concern. But then when you get into demonology, uh, like that's a whole other area. Like, okay, well, these demons get to run around and just do whatever. That doesn't seem right. They're like, well, no, no, no. They can do certain things. And I believe Aquinas writes that like they are allowed to do certain things because by allowing the demons a certain amount of freedom, it actually um, has a positive impact on the faithful, you know, because like in having to deal with all of this, uh, demonic stuff, like it's going to end up bolstering your faith to some extent, hmm. but it's complicated. It's complicated. That's why, that's why people like Aquinas, uh, committed so many words to it. Okay. Should we wrap up necromancy there? I believe we will, but you know, we, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If there's an example of um, outright necromancy and and fiction, legend, and lore, or various examples of communication with spirits or ancestor veneration that you think are are notable and you'd like to bring up, well, write in. We would love to hear from you. We, we can keep discussing uh, this topic on future editions of Listener Mail. Listener Mail publishes on Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have our core episodes of the show stuff to blow your mind on tuesdays and thursdays on wednesdays we generally have a short form monster fact or artifact episode and then on fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on weird house cinema huge thanks to our excellent audio producer jj posway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. 
Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.